My 20s were a decade of trying to figure out what in the heck was going on. We were told something is happening on the streets, so get ready, use your guns against the people. Whatever you do, as best as you know how to live into it, be full-hearted or just quit. Be full-hearted and quitting. Our lives are meant to make us feel very safe and very taken care of. And then what you end up feeling is you don't know yourself in unknown places. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Ensigns Podcast. I'm Sam. And I'm Blaine. And we're diving back into the waters of feminism today. Yes, so if you missed last week, don't worry. You can go find it and catch up with us. But you don't really need to have everything from last week just to start here. So don't skip this one. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's going to make people feel like last week they didn't need to listen to. No, no. It, it plays in some very important ways. But as you remember, last week we talked about hegemony, a political and a cultural concept of the way that people tend to support systems that feed their flesh. Yeah, which is to say it's it's almost like a worldview or a way of ascribing value to things, except that it's put into place by someone who wants to control someone else. Exactly. We talked about last week how there's both political and cultural hegemony. And having those two things in hand, it's really helpful because you can see how, uh, as we trace the story of feminism, we'll see how it started as an effort to address political hegemony and then how it developed into a movement that attempted to address cultural hegemony. But before we get going today, we just wanted to step back for a minute and explain why we're doing this podcast. Yeah, and Sons is not a political podcast. It's not a political magazine. It's not focused on yeah, the myriad of issues out there that it could be. Yeah, so Ansons is not a political platform. It's not something that we get on here and start taking pot shots at one way of thinking versus another. However, there is a posture that we have here, which is kind of an if-then posture. And the, the if is, if you are a young man or a young woman who is a follower of Christ and you want to be growing in maturity and bringing goodness, then you are going to need to be aware of certain things and care about certain things. Absolutely. So we totally assume that the core of the world, the core of the issues in the world is the human heart and that what we want to do is show how uh, the kingdom of God affects the human heart, give you some understanding of your own life and story so that you can actually make a real difference to the things right in front of you, to the people in front of you, in your work, in your life with God. And we want to orient you to the contemporary world, the millennial world. And we had a lot of conversation around this, deciding which pieces were actually important to throw into the conversation so that you could understand the world that you're living in, so that you could understand the millennial experience. Yeah, we were having a conversation with Padre uh, last week, and he was talking about the cultural posture these days that is almost offended if you are not aware of all of these different issues. 
people can come at you and be like, what, you didn't know about the plight of the bees and how you're actually shopping at the wrong place and they're using these pesticides that kill them and you should be shopping somewhere else? Or what, you didn't know that you should be using your cold tap water instead of your hot when you're making yourself tea or coffee because if it's hot, you're actually pulling some of the taste of the chemicals from your hot water heater as opposed to just the cold water pulling from the cold tap instead. What? You didn't know about feminism. You didn't know about animal cruelty. You didn't know about racism in this particular way. You didn't know about the two sides of the police brutality arguments. I mean, it just goes on and on. And I've certainly experienced that. And I know that, and this conversation I was having with Padre, he certainly experienced it. And it's almost like the fire hose of things to be responsible for like somehow by you not knowing you you've been messing up all along um we were naming that past generations would feel this kind of sense of i'm behind like i i really need to i should have been starting earlier with my finances and my yard and my physical fitness but i'm i'm like behind but i can i can still do it whereas the shift these days isn't so much i'm behind as there's just too much. Absolutely. And kind of unfortunately, the environment on something like social media is one issue after the next. Why don't you know about this? Learn about this. Educate yourself about this. And it's actually not always helpful because, yes, you actually do need to know about the things that are right in front of you. And yes, there are things that God is calling you to respond to at a particular time, probably the people that you live around. But I thought this was actually Sam's point on a recent drive together. But the way that he explained it was, it's like a tank commander and a paratrooper. And you were just saying, you know, no, the paratrooper doesn't need to understand everything about the running of a tank because he has a role, he has a mission, and he has a special set of skills. However, they actually do need to know enough of the other person's world in order to collaborate and to work together. And if there's times that they intersect, to have language and to have understanding to be able to do that to win the war. Right. And this was a metaphor about people bringing the kingdom and bringing light into darkness. There are many different beachheads and and battlefields, and you might be called to a very specific set. And yet the posture shouldn't be that because you hear about another battlefield, you are now responsible to go there. However, to name and embrace and support people that do battle there, and when it comes in your world, to collaborate. So that's the metaphor there. So we'll be talking about, you know, a ton of different issues here because this domino effect begins to happen. So if you are caring about the world around you and bringing light, then you're going to begin to see places of darkness all over the place. Now, that doesn't mean that you are solely responsible for carrying the torch into all of them, but to be aware of them and to begin to make shifts in your own world and your own spheres of influence, a conversation that we had a long time ago, will actually begin to do a great good. With that in mind... Here we go. We're going to be looking at uh, where did the movement and where did the concept come from? How did they develop? What were they responding to? And then how does it explain where we are now, where basically the back and forth now goes like, I'm a feminist or, you know, I'm just not a feminist or, you know, 
basically only those two sentences without kind of a common understanding of what issue you're talking about at a given time and what that means. And in this story, I'm going to be using Bell Hook's book, Feminism is for Everyone. It's kind of a guide, really helpful book. And she just begins by pointing out that the issue here really isn't men and women per se, and definitely not uh, men and women in conflict. It's about sexism, simply meaning acts of discrimination and oppression and often violence done against women because they're women. I mean, Bell Hooks defines it as feminism is a movement to end sexism, sexist exploitation, and oppression. And not everyone agrees with that definition. And as we're going to see as we get down into the third wave of feminism, a lot of people inside the movement find the language restrictive. But to understand the concept in the history, you have to begin with sexism. And so to start, just need to orient ourselves to the fact that the oppression of women is a very real thing. I'm just going to read an excerpt from a report. It's 10 years old now, but it's still a very good one. There's some updated research here, but this is uh, by a division of the United Nations, the Geneva Center for the Democratic Control of Armed Forces, and they did this kind of massive global study on the condition of women, and they named their initial section Slaughtering Eve. And it just goes, according to estimates by the United Nations, up to 200 million women and girls are demographically, in quotes, missing. The euphemism hides one of the most shocking crimes against humanity. Given the biological norm of 100 newborn girls to every 103 newborn boys, millions more women should be living amongst us. If they are not, if they are missing, then they have been killed or have died through neglect and mistreatment. They go on, the full magnitude of the issue sinks only if we put the figures in perspective. The number of the missing women killed for gender-related reasons is of the same order of magnitude as the estimated 191 million human beings who have lost their lives directly or indirectly as a result of all the conflicts and wars of the 20th century. So, we're dealing with something massive here. And yes, you might be thinking, well, that's, that's a different animal when you're talking about violence. But we go, yeah, but it, it begins actually in these worldview issues and in these subtle cultural issues. So it's kind of hard to tell this story uh, in a straight line. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But where I'm going to start is if you just look at the West. I don't think it's a secret that I really like classical scholarship, like the study of the ancient Greeks and Rome, and that's something I like to nerd out about. What? I know, it's, it's wild. But uh, there's this obsession in the world of classicists, which is the status of women in Athens. There's a great paper on this by a classicist, Dr. Marilyn Katz. And when she points out, look at the legendary historians, kind of some in the early 20th century, but especially moving backwards in time. They've all tried to figure out, you know, how were women treated in Athens? What did it look like? A.W. Gom, this kind of legendary classic scholar from Britain, uh, this German guy, Karl Berlock, also kind of a major historian, an historian. 
but also an economist, and then actually working your way back to Rousseau, and before Jacques Rousseau, John Locke. And it's really intriguing. Why are they so obsessed with the status of women in ancient Greece? And, you know, the answer is because actually the philosophers of the Enlightenment were looking for the appropriate position of women in the modern world. It's the middle of the 18th century, the Enlightenment is in full swing, and these scholars see themselves as the heirs of antiquity, the heirs of classical civilization. And so they are looking at, okay, well, if we just go back to like civilization itself, what did women look like there? And then how should we model their role here to reflect that? The problem is, you know, if you've learned a thing or two about Greek society, is it's not positive, like not remotely positive. The, the one example of philosopher Zeno, who kind of writes this treatise on what are human beings, kind of famously excludes women. And he goes, a human is this animal in which there's a divine spark, because it's a man in which there's a divine spark. And then remember Xenophon, a historian from last time, he's pretty influential in this as a philosopher about, and as a historian to go, yeah, you know, women have a role, but it's kind of a role, and if they are educated, their husbands need to educate them because they have no place in the public sphere. And this gets in to the Enlightenment worldview. In a fairly famous book for the Americas, Two Treatises on Government, which the Founding Fathers really obsessed with. John Locke wrote it uh, in the late 1600s. And he was writing about that thing that is later going to be represented as we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Well, he's kind of writing some of that down for the first time. And he goes, you know, all individual men are owners and that they all own the property in their persons and capacities over which they alone have jurisdiction. In essence, they have a kind of free will and dignity. And then he goes on, he's writing about how they form an association or they form a community through a contract. And then he writes, women submit themselves to their husbands, a submission which has a foundation in nature. It being the last determination that the rule should be placed somewhere, it naturally falls to the man's share to be abler. So, a little problematic thing. I'll give you a big problematic thing getting in here where as the worldview that's going to shape the West and it's going to shape the United States is forming, this thing is getting in, which is that, in fact, women are a lesser kind of humanity. And obviously, this flies in the face of believing that they're made in the image of God, that it is the life of God and men and women which actually gives them any kind of dignity. And then, you know, Rousseau, he makes it even worse. And Rousseau writes this thing, The Social Contract, about 100 years later, hugely influential. But he, he writes about the status of women in Athens to kind of explain this is how women should be treated. And what he comes up with is, yeah, they were treated in isolation and that helped relationships because men and women then didn't get sick of each other. Like, how great is that? And so he throws in this thing of, you know, separate arenas and a, and a real seclusion of women is part of the foundation 
of a functional society. So this is getting into the worldview in the beginning as well. And not just getting into, but formative yes. parts of society and understanding. Yeah, so this, is, this shapes the post-Enlightenment Western conception of personhood. And this is going to have huge ramifications down the line. One other, one other key thing. So we're British colonies, for those of you that didn't know, and we kind of famously rebelled and won a little revolution. And we needed laws. And the easiest thing to do was to adopt the laws of our previous ruler. Actually, we had them before the United States declared independence. But this is fascinating because I went down this rabbit hole in researching for this podcast. And English law, have, have you ever looked at it? I really haven't had a reason to. Yeah, I guess neither have I. But it turns out it is confusing as end all. <laughs> okay. Well, it, it, seriously, so I was trying to figure out where did the definition of a citizen come from and kind of see what shaped that. And then I knew that there were issues, later issues with property rights for women. I was trying to figure out where that started. And it was just this weird article on, okay, so 1066, William the Conqueror takes over England and he establishes feudalism and serfs are bound to the land, blah, 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 blah. And then you have the Black Death and so workers are able to negotiate. And it, anyway, the point is, it's totally confusing until... This guy comes along, William Blackstone. And in the year right before the American Revolution, he writes kind of the first book on English law. And it's really nice because you can carry it around. And if you are a county or a rural judge in the American colonies, finally, you have a book of law with you. And and early American law ends up largely based on the Blackstone commentaries where he kind of explains here's what property law looks like and here's what civic law looks like. And he has an extensive section on people and people in relationships. And so here's a quote from his kind of explanation of women in society. Blackstone writes, By marriage, the husband and wife are one person in the law. That is, the very being or legal existence of the woman is suspended during the marriage or at least is incorporated and consolidated into that of the husband. What this means is that women cannot inherit in all kinds of other things. Okay, I'd start off with like, oh, yay, they're one person. That makes it, oh my gosh, what? Right? Isn't that crazy? Uh, also that he closes that sentence with they can't inherit in all kinds of other things. Yeah, I sort of assumed that was you wrapping up his quote. No, that is a direct quote. Women <laughs> oh cannot inherit in all kinds of other things. And so he's essentially looking at the judge going, et cetera, et cetera. Use your imagination. I mean, you know, is essentially what he's saying. Right. And if now if you're a judge looking at this, all you have to do is kind of fill in the blank left for you by William Blackstone of like, oh, well, if a woman, when she's married, isn't and isn't a person anymore, she's morphed into the personhood of her husband, like she can't own property, she can't work a job, obviously she can't vote, she has no rights under the law. Scary. This gets in. And so we're going to pick up first wave feminism about a hundred years, more or less, actually quite a few less, after the Blackstone commentaries, after this legal framework forming. And 
we're going to go to 1848. This is like a watershed moment, and I think most people that were studying the history of feminism would begin with names like Elizabeth Cady Stanton or Lucretia Mott, which are kind of floating out there, uh, the Seneca Falls Declaration. And it's this, in New York, these women get together, 300 of them, and they write the Declaration of Sentiments. They mirror the language of the Declaration of Independence. And what they're doing is they're arguing that women are equal under the law. So this is super fascinating. You've seen the movie Lincoln? Yes. Yeah, well, Tommy Lee Jones has that great role of Thaddeus Stevens, the abolitionist, and... What's really fascinating is what Thaddeus Stevens knows he has to do in order to work to abolish slavery is to get the question of worldview, of the ideology off the table, and just talk about the law. There's this famous part in the movie which reflects something Thaddeus Stevens was known for doing in that he just goes, we are not talking about equality of personhood, although he was. He says, we are talking about equality under the law. Well, into doing, kind of borrowing a book from the early feminist page, from first wave feminism, which is, let's just go after the law. Let's go after the legal definitions of, is a woman a citizen? And as a citizen, does she have the full rights of citizenship? And so, this is 1848, right? We're only halfway through the 19th century. So, nothing is actually going to change. Nothing substantial is going to change for almost 75 years until 1920, the 15th Amendment is passed and women finally have the right to vote. So you have this this campaign that spans an entire generation that, and many of these women kind of take a break from advocating for full suffrage to advocate for the abolition of slavery and they're, they're instrumental in that movement and then they're gathering momentum again. But, you know, 1873, Supreme Court says, Women can't practice law. 1875, the Supreme Court says that they make up a special class of non-voting citizens. And up until 1887, most states didn't actually let women control their own property. So, and that, this all goes back to that enlightenment belief that she can't have property because she's not really a full person. And the crazy thing is that all of this stuff is sort of obvious, to most of us now. Should a woman have a right to vote? Yes. Should a woman as a citizen have all of the protections under the law? Yes. Well, she doesn't. And she still doesn't because three years after the passage of the 15th Amendment and women can vote, this equal rights amendment of does a woman have the full standing equal to a man everywhere, it's evidently a very complex piece of legislation, still hasn't been passed. And there's still a movement to get that through Congress. So here we are. We're at the end of wave one. We went through really quickly. And it's functionally, globally, it takes a lot longer. You know, in France, women don't have the right to vote until after the end of the Second World War. And uh, in other countries in Europe, it takes much longer. And it's, it's this legal fight. And if you've seen the movie Selma, another great movie, highly recommended, you'll see kind of a good scene where Martin Luther King Jr. is explaining why the right to vote is so important. And what he explains is 
actually, there are all these crimes against Black people in the South. And the reason that none of the perpetrators are ever convicted is because they're tried by white juries because a person cannot serve on a jury unless they have the right to vote. And you have the same problem with women of without the right to vote. You can't serve on a jury, so you don't have a very significant influence in law. But you also, you know, can't take down representatives who are making it difficult to be a woman in the country who are keeping you from being able to hold a job or own property or execute your husband's will. So it's this key thing that, you know, that's fought for for a century in most places. So things go on for the next 40 years or so, still in the legal sphere, like 1938, Women finally have fair labor standards. 1947, women are finally said to be equally qualified to serve on juries. It's a critical moment. And then we kind of stay in what's broadly termed first wave feminism, suffrage, until the 1960s. You know, I'm already struck by is the word feminism these days has so many connotations unfortunately, mostly negative. And I'm struck by how that first wave feminism has actually been pulled out and it's just been kind of relabeled suffrage because I think of them as two different things. Yes, I think of women fighting for equal rights, equal dignity, equal personhood in the law as like, who these days, no one would contest that. No one would be like, that's not a good thing. That was women's suffrage. Feminism, however, is totally different it's super aggressive and it's anti-men and all of these things. And yet, actually, its origins was in a very noble and appropriate movement. Abs- yeah, it's such a key point because it's just vital to look at where we've come from because it's so easy to take for granted, like, well, I mean, women have rights, so isn't everything fine? And to ignore the fact that each one of those has been hard won over this massive period of time. And simply this battle to be treated as persons inside a nation, that, that's a hundred-year effort. It's actually much longer. And then, as you mentioned, things begin to diversify and become confusing. And this is the second wave. And this is where the second wave comes in. So this is actually pretty interesting because, you know, 1960s, just free associate. What comes to mind? 1960s uh, movements. Uh, Hippies, free love, drugs, uh, anti-war. That yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. The sexual revolution. Exactly. And that's the biggest one, the sexual revolution. Crazy, but second wave feminism, which really kind of gets pulled into or, you know, becomes synonymous with the sexual revolution, doesn't start there. It starts with a pretty simple book uh, by Betty Friedman. Actually, it's Betty Frieden. The Feminine Mystique. She writes it in 1963. And again... In reading for this podcast, you, you go through that book, and I think people would be surprised 
the extent to which it feels obvious now. And it's easy to forget that Betty Friedan was revolutionary, where she looks at the world and she goes, wow, we've had this fight against that first level of hegemony, political hegemony. Like, what is the actual governance? Who can vote? Who's in power? But then she looks around and goes, we still have a massive uh, devaluing, discrimination, isolation of women inside culture that's still coming up out of cultural hegemony. It's coming up out of that enlightenment idea. And suddenly it goes, frankly, much, much further. And a better scholar could point just how much further than the enlightenment, but that all the way to ancient Greece and beyond, that a woman is somehow less uh, or not quite a full person or all of these other things. And so, you know, Betty Frieden goes, a woman only has one definition, a housewife, mother. And then she kind of protests that of, actually, there are lots of women in various places around the world where that's not kind of their dominant thing. And we've, we've been sold this here in the United States. And she's kind of protesting 1950s motherhood, which now we make movies about and people kind of wince a little bit. But she's working against that. She points out she has a chapter that's against the legacy of Freudian psychology. Freud kind of famously didn't think much of women. In fact, uh, he was pretty much a misogynist. Uh, and then she also attacks this thing, functionalism, which is the study of connections between like the society and the people. And what she's actually attacking is the same tool that we described in the last podcast that Georges Cuvier used to get the idea of race gaining momentum. Because Georges Cuvier goes, looked for connections between you know, a material thing, how tall a person was, and a cultural thing, where they lived and what their agriculture looked like. Well, the same thing was happening in sociology in the middle of the 20th century, where sociologists were looking for connections between how tall a woman was or the relative sizes of men and women, and then what they spent their time doing. And they were kind of showing, oh, this is what makes society. Like, women work in the house and cook, and men drive to their office and you know, proceed to be totally mean and manipulative and go all madmen on the world. And Betty Friedan is kind of one of the initial people to go, this is crazy. What you're talking about is a culture, and then you're tying it into things that just happen to also be materially present. So this is kind of, this is what happens. But what happens in the 1960s in second wave feminism is the sexual revolution, the idea that functionally everyone should be promiscuous and women should be exactly as promiscuous as men. There's a great book that your wife tossed to my wife on this topic by Sue Ellen Browder called Subverted. It's all in the title, How I Helped the Sexual Revolution Hijack the Women's Movement. And that really happens. And this is interesting. Returning to Bell Hooks, when she begins to talk about second wave feminism, what she said, what she notices is there are now reformists and there are revolutionaries. And the reformists just want the same rights as men. Like they want to be able to have the same jobs as men and compete in them. And then some women want revolution, which is actually kind of taking down the, the worldview itself. And so when you have equality, when you have reformists kind of rising in the 1960s of 
we want the same opportunities as men, uh, this agenda leads to some problems. Like, for one thing, women can also then begin to participate actually in, like, a class system that has negative consequences for women. But obviously, if gender equality is the only value, uh, women operating in with the same ways as men, even if the ways that men are operating is not okay, right? That's one of the problems here. Then you have derailment number one, lots of sex. And it's even interesting, Betty Friedan, who gets, you know, the second wave of feminism moving in many ways, she actually has a chapter on how sex isn't enough for a woman and even how sex is not freedom. What she actually is after is something uh, much more significant, which is her full value, her full presence in society. Nonetheless, you have the sexual revolution. And here's where things get super crazy is you got a lot of sex. You have a lot of... STDs. That too, and pregnancies. And so I think where a lot of people see, and this is where these massive schisms open, obviously, when all of a sudden, because of this, you have abortion becomes front and center. And interestingly, you know, Bell Hooks writes about this, and it's so fascinating. She writes, at the time, quote, while the issue of abortion was relevant, there were other reproductive issues that were just as vital and needed attention and might have served to galvanize masses. These issues ranged from basic sex education, prenatal care, preventative health care that would help females understand how their bodies worked, to forced sterilization, unnecessary cesareans, and or hysterectomies, and the medical complications they left in their wake. Like, all those things were real. And yet, this thing, you know, Bell Hooks even names it, this begins to derail the feminist movement where what happens is, can women have the equal rights of men? And if they're going to act exactly like men, can they be as promiscuous as men? And if they're being as promiscuous as men, never mind if anyone should be promiscuous in a society, then what about there, this huge term, reproductive rights? And appropriately, there's a lot of backlash. There's a lot of recoiling here of different parties going, wait, what are you talking about? And, you know, it's such a, that is a truly vague term. And it includes things that Hooks mentions that are pretty pretty simple to agree upon. Like, at the time, should women have access to sex education? Uh, yeah. Should there be forced sterilization? Which was totally a thing. And you could rightly say, uh, no, you shouldn't, you know, sterilize a person who does not want to be sterilized. But nonetheless, kind of the, the key issue uh, becomes this thing of sex and abortion. And obviously, as a consequence, feminism loses a huge amount of momentum, uh, begins to fragment. And you have then, you know, parties inside the movement and uh, women and, and both kind of looking in different directions and going, okay, what we need to do to change the culture, what we need to do to change the position of women is just to go this way. And those aren't the same ways. So, so like what began as women having equal rights and being identified as 
human beings with value then kind of snowballs into we should be able to have everything that you can have and society uh, has hedonistic roots and so they step into the world of well if you guys are doing this we want to be able to do this and because of the time the culture like I think this is where I start to lose some of my if I were a woman in that time, I could feel myself going, we're, we're losing what was good about this and getting sucked into what's crappy about society in general right now. And we're going to lose momentum here. So how does that shift into third wave? I don't totally understand what third wave is. And yeah, I'm a little bit braced because I feel like I'm going to not like it. Yeah. Well, the nice thing is that I don't think anyone likes all of third wave feminism because it's so varied, honestly, because the agendas sometimes are in direct conflict or almost direct conflict. But just to reinforce your point, as we're talking about the things that complicate and that begin to fragment second wave feminism in the 1960s and the 1970s, I can hear you know, an educated listener going, well, wait, that's not what happened. And it looks like this. And I just want to go, exactly. There were... There were more than one thing happening. And, you know, it. the one other thing that I would throw in that happens in uh, kind of the 70s and 80s with mixed results and paves the way for third wave feminism is that uh, feminism becomes institutionalized. You have your first women's studies departments. And on, on the one hand, that's cool. But as Bell Hooks points out in her book, she goes, that also has the problem of the academy has always been a classist environment. Not everybody can go to college, and not everyone who's at college can understand what they're talking about there. So suddenly, feminism becomes something that is a profession. And when you have a profession, you have class struggle. You have people you know, fighting to get a leg up for those jobs, and so... But Hooks points out there's competition between women, which begins to break apart solidarity. And then, you know, the books now and that are written about uh, women, no one reads because they're written in academic jargon and they're very difficult. And, you know, as these scholars who are doing valuable work uh, are trying to, to get their ideas out there, they're not getting out there. And so you have this, this tension now, which is, yes, you know, we need professional work in this field. But then also it's getting pulled out of kind of the hands of the people and this is getting spread around. And so this is where third wave comes in or things that are identified as third wave feminism. And to understand why we have third wave feminism, all you need to do is kind of look at the history we've just told. And so the great heroes, starting with, you know, the English woman, Mary Wollstonecraft, and then the ones we've mentioned in this podcast related to Seneca Falls, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, um, Lucretia Mott, um, Emmeline Pankhurst. They're all white women, and they all are from one class of women. And so uh, other folks begin pointing out that there are different experiences of womanhood. And by the time you're in third wave feminism, you really have to explain who you are and kind of what you're doing because so many things begin happening and like so many histories um, start to be told. Like, you know, for example, there are third wave feminists that just show that 
you know, what the real problem is a class problem, or there are third-wave feminists that say the real problem is gender itself. Uh, there's a third-wave movement of black feminism, womanism, which kind of points out that actually culture is the lens through which you see your femininity. There's There are multiple lenses through which a woman understands femininity. And then also, these scholars begin doing the work of going like, hey, guys, you know what really got feminism moving? And you know what got the civil rights moving? It was black women in the South rebelling against rape culture. Like in 1855, there's this famous court case, Missouri versus Celia, which says that a woman who's being held captive as a slave does not have the right to protect her own body. And yet even so, you have this this huge story of black women telling their stories and looking for litigation and, and, and fighting to have actual just any control over themselves. And then there's a great history of this at the dark end of the street by Danielle McGuire. But you have these feminist scholars looking at, you know, hey, actually, the story you've been telling about the experience of womanhood isn't really the story that happened and why aren't black women represented? And, you know, how are we how are we talking about how the thing that got this going was rape culture? And, you know, when you finally have in the 1960s bra burning, and now everybody has to say, well, I'm not, you know, a bra burning feminist. This actually makes sense when you look at if this came out of women fighting to have rights to their own bodies, then there are all of these things designed by someone probably a man, because women weren't allowed to have jobs in the beginning of the 20th century, who kind of created the imaginary of what a woman looked like and then inv- invented, like, corsets and bras and all these other things to, like, make a woman look like that. And that's that's a way of controlling a person's body. And so suddenly, you know, bra burners fit in this legacy of fighting to actually have right to their body, which in many ways, that fight is still still absolutely going on. So third wave feminism is multiple movements going on at the same time, uh, addressing the position of women in the world from all of these different angles. But with those two in hand, we actually catch up to the present tense super fast. Like we're there now. Where we are is second wave feminism is still going on. So you have this movement. One of the central agendas is gender equality. Uh, And then also you have the crazy position of sexuality in our culture. Uh, And and you have, you know, the real issues in the workforce of women not being represented in as high-level jobs, there being a significant pay gap. And then you have right now also many people feeling that second-wave feminism doesn't represent them. And kind of this is where you get the first, well, I'm not a feminist thing because maybe you disagree with this or that agenda. And then at the same time, third wave feminism is going on and it is just complex. And, you know, this is the place where most people react against feminism or like when they hear the language that the conversation comes up, what they think of is a conversation going on that is totally against gender in the world, and they go, well, I'm not a feminist because that's the conversation, or they see something going on that's actually somehow about race and are unsure how they fit into that conversation. And so you get the term being 
operationalized, being taken up by so many groups and used in different agendas that it's a little bit of the confusion makes sense right now of a person looking at kind of in quotes feminism and not understanding, first of all, if it's something that a person should aspire to be and second of all, what they're doing. But at the same time, you have like an incredible amount of violence against women in the world still. And something as basic as out of every 1,000 rapes, 994 aggressors walk free. And so you have, you know, massive issues of prevailing injustice. You have the report of women in an insecure world. You have the attack of women globally. So sexism, discrimination based on sex, violence based on sex is still absolutely going on. And it's clear that we still have sexism, but the conversation of feminism is so big, it's unclear where you step in to begin addressing that. And then, you know, us sitting here in Ansons, we have an additional set of tools and kind of the basic question looking at the world of are women treated in a way that honors the image of God in them? Yeah, so when we look at the stories of Jesus and the way he interacted with women 2,000 years ago, there was honor and dignity in ways that culturally was far beyond the time and the ways that he respected and honored. And I feel like we are called to as well uh, is something that I've thought about and and wrestled with as I've personally experienced the, you know, kind of duality of my response to feminism. Because on the one hand, I like, yes, I want to advocate for women and the women in my world and the women that are in my world and their protection and their honor. And on the other hand, the sexual revolution has really terrible consequences on both sides. We did a little bit of reading into the effect on women of the introduction of birth control, which should be relatively freeing, and yet the actual abuse and damage just drastically rose. Then my heart also goes out in this story because I watched this kind of this narrative unfolding where women look around, they see the injustice in the world that is the way that they are seen and treated. So what begins with women fighting for their own rights then becomes the heartbreaking need to be embodying those male characteristics, which is really just conforming to the whole cultural hegemony thing. The people who are aggressive, independent, have leader qualities, have kind of lone wolf qualities are better than people who are emotional, than people who are um, kind of tribe-oriented, than people who seem a little bit more vulnerable. And so women shed some of these things, and men are also required to shed some of these things. So my heart breaks because I watch the story of the, the way that the culture works, where in order for women to succeed, they need to look like a particular kind of man not even they don't even need to look like men they need to look like this very aggressive style of men and men who are emotional and have feelings and have that kind of softer side are also forced to kind of take on this harder aspect and so you just get damage on both sides where men and women can't be 
anything other than what the culture is requiring them to be. Um, if I can just jump in right there, yeah. that's a, such a huge point because third wave feminists point out that a cultural hegemony, even if it gives men a position of privilege, still harms them and is actually still harmful for them to participate in because it defines the way they have to act, what they have to do. And honestly, just taken on its own terms, that's a lot of what we're working against in and sons of, hey, the cultural hegemony says that as a man, success looks like this kind of thing. Car, house, good job, power. We're saying it looks like the development of your character and the impact you have on the people you interact with. Like, this is a, this is a massive upturning to go, actually, the cultural hegemony is harmful for each person that participates in it. Yeah, and I, so I remember when I started dating Susie in college, um, there were some people in her world that were kind of nervous because it was like, wait, the wild at heart captivating world? Like, isn't that uh, complementarian? Isn't that like gender role that's, that they want you to be doing a certain thing? Aren't you the princess in the tower? Which obviously irritates me because I'm like, can these people read more than just the back cover copy and people's reviews online? And yet when I've, <laughs> I, th- I wish people could come into our worlds and see the women that not only we pursued, but that fill the halls of the office here and that fill the stories of people that kind of walk in this message that actually you get this like beautiful rising of both parties to be more of themselves. And that's like, that's what I would want for my daughter and for the women that I know and the women that I don't is, and actually truthfully for the men, because we take a lot of flack which I think is ridiculous. There's some flack I'm like totally fine with taking, and this is one of them, for being too emotional or too touchy-feely. Yeah. Um, Where I kind of want to go, wait, so the fact that we are examining our lives and opening ourselves up to name things that we're experiencing means that we're not the traditional, man, I did football, and I have no feelings, and I just charged down the field. Like, well, um, I'm sorry. Actually you have now done harm to the male idea uh, and by trying to confine it. And so, you know, as Susie and I started dating, as people started, uh, or Susie and I continued dating, these people were actually pretty, I think I think that they were surprised because if the posture that what we're after and what I, the way that I want to respond to the ways of feminism at first is like, ooh, okay, I, I don't want to necessarily jump in because I don't know which which of these many forks are you advocating right now? But if what you're advocating is protection and goodness and co-equality and all the many ways that that is played out when it's under the kingdom of God, that awesome, yes, totally. Why, why would you say anything else? Um, which is why I almost want to come back to the very beginning of what we started. Hearing this podcast, you shouldn't necessarily feel like you're uh, charge is to now join a women's advocacy group. But maybe it is. And for those that it's not, I think of ways that I've been able to subtly shift ways that I see things, interact with things. For instance, maybe you run your own company. It would be really interesting if you started paying more attention to 
the types of people that you hire and the types of ways that they are paid, or if you're not the actual one who's running it, but you're in the organization to begin speaking up and using your voice in that regards, like that, those are your small battlefields that you then begin to get to engage in as you bring light. It's actually, that's just absolutely huge. If, you know what? As a man, the culture that you live in is going to default to give you power. And are you going to let the system continue to just feed your flesh? Because you mentioned the Holy Spirit Ransom Torah. You mentioned the ways that Jesus actually absolutely transforms this. This is a huge deal. I mean, it's crazy that so few people notice what the what women are actually like in the Bible. Just I'm just going to blast through some examples. But the first person in the Bible to see like God sees to have a vision that aligns with the vision of the Trinity for the earth is a woman. It's Moses' mother. The word apostle means the sent ones, the ones who are sent to bring the good news of the power of Jesus. The first apostles, all women, the dudes are hiding in a room and the women are commissioned to bring the news of the resurrection to them. And not to overlook the staggering position of Mary, who is the one who introduces the song of the revolution that is going to carry the whole tone of the New Testament on into our present day. And actually, here's a huge podcast plug. You should listen to the first episode in the Advent series from the Allender Center. And it's all about Mary and the Magnificat, and it's remarkable. And so, yes, you know, you said if someone goes, isn't initiating a conversation around feminism, and it's like ending sexist discrimination, violence, harm. Absolutely. And actually, this is something that the kingdom of God specifically addresses, like changes the world, changes the way that we interact with one another. And just one example from our halls that I love is, so our neighboring office is is Alex, one of the just greatest all-around men you could know, and a total outdoorsman, you know. He's a skier. He's competent. You know, he can work with his hands. He just retiled the bathroom. That's a very manly thing. And as the event director, he partners with the women's team. And simply watching him walk in with his strength, like, yeah, he'll 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 advise when it's asked for. He'll operate out of, out of his gifting. He's not hiding. And yet he knows that mom has the floor, that she actually has a calling to lead in a space that he's totally responding to. So... You're, you're wanting, as you're just saying, to begin changing the way you act a little bit. We all know women. And do you let the system feed your flesh? Do you always be the dominant voice in the room? You know, do you tell the joke about women's emotions, et cetera, et cetera? Or do you yield the floor? Do you let the women around you step into, carry the unique thing in the kingdom that they carry, including leading from that, including having something to offer from that that you are going to learn from. Just even the way you conduct yourself in conversation is a way to bring the kingdom. And once when the kingdom is here, like far down the line, this addresses rape culture and this addresses violence. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, uh, to that, uh, I want to say that when goodness and life is brought to one set of people, uh, if it's genuine goodness in life, not just manipulation and power, everyone benefits. And so this isn't a 
gender battle of like, oh, okay, if I'm going to be for women, then I'm against men. Like, uh, no, actually, as you become young men or young women who are better advocating for each other, then like, I think that's the best way to get rid of the sex slave industry and the rape culture. And you actually honor men more because they are not just seen as these fiendish sex crazed animals but they are men of dignity and emotion and women are equally valued and protected and protecting so some homework that podcast i recommended from the allender center advent one in the series look it up and listen to it it's with dan allender and dr angela parker who's a new testament scholar and a womanist and fascinating exploration of Mary and the Magnificat uh, that actually shed some light on a lot of this. I'd recommend Bell Hook's book, Feminism is for Everyone. And you don't need to agree with everything in there. You really don't. But it's a great book that kind of just opens with, here's what sexism looks like, and here's why the movement isn't anti-man. And then it kind of, it's a very readable story of, here are the kinds of things at stake in this. And I found it hugely helpful for being oriented to what is going on. And then as we mentioned in the last podcast, beginning to pay attention uh, to where I'm just letting the world satisfy my desires to be fed or to be honored, or to matter, versus actually looking for something that reflects Jesus, looking to act in a way in the communities where I am, in the marriage where I am, that welcomes the Spirit of God to transform, honors the image of God in another person, and actually lets the Father be the one to affirm me, rather than needing people and a culture to affirm me, all those things are game-changing, the beginnings of kind of a revolutionary move. Guys, I hope that this part one, part two has been good and educational and intriguing and maybe it pissed you off and maybe you got really pumped about it. Maybe you're right now writing us an email about how we should just mind our own business. Great, all of it. I love it. I certainly learned some things about history, which is often the case we get Blaine going. But more than anything else, as we begin to bring light and develop ourselves, I think I want to have the humility to look back and say, there was a point in time when I was not ready to take a closer look at the way that I operated. And in this case, towards women and towards a society that's set up in a certain way. As that humility comes, may you have eyes to see and eyes to engage. Guys, thanks for dropping by and listening to the podcast. We hope you enjoyed it today. If you want to keep tabs on us and what other projects we've got going on, the best way to do that is to follow us on social media. If you are no longer on social media like some of us, don't panic. You can still keep tabs on what we're up to. Just go to ansonsmagazine.com, join our mailing list, and we'll keep you in the know. And while you're there, be sure to read the magazine. 